nine sailors had barely started on the night shift of the 205-foot ship, the USS Housatonic, that guarded the South Atlantic from any blockade runners trying to deliver supplies to South Carolina. Another 155 men tried to stay warm below decks. It's February 17, 1864. The night was cold and the moon was full. It would be around 8.30 p.m. that Robert F. Fleming would see an object floating on the water about 400 feet from the ship, bobbing along the waves, barely visible in the light of the moon. He called the floating object to the attention of the acting master's mate, Louis A. Comthwaite, who glanced over the edge of the ship and quickly dismissed the debris. Quote, it's just a log, end quote. Fleming was a landsman, which meant he was probably a new recruit for the vessel and had not yet earned his sea legs, or the respect of his mates, and probably doesn't even recognize a floating log when he sees one. <laughs> you know it's going to be a good story with a setup like this. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. By 1864, Charleston, South Carolina was pretty much the last standing port in the southern states for the Confederacy. It was considered one of the last opportunities to get supplies to their military units, but also to the civilian population as well. This was part of a plan referred to as the Anaconda Plan, meaning that the Union's intention was to slowly choke out the supply lines to the Confederate states. The Union would place huge ships in the ocean surrounding the southern borders and it would blast any supply ships heading their way. Desperate to make some headway, the Confederate government offered an incentive of $50,000 to anyone who could sink one of these ships. The USS Housatonic had a wooden hull and was equipped with 12 cannons. It could hold about 160 men, but it was getting more and more difficult to find new recruits. It remained in shallow waters about five miles from the shore of Charleston. On the evening of February 17th, the H.L. Hunley points itself toward the towering sloop of the Housatonic. The moon is nearly full and shimmering across the top of the water's surface. Lieutenant Dixon commands the submarine silently and directs it blindly to where their compass coordinates told them the ship would be. The new and improved third model Hunley was equipped with a 135-pound torpedo attached at the end of a 20-foot wood and metal pole called a spar. It was hooked up in such a way that those inside could still have some control of it, but not much. Earlier prototypes had a spiral edge that would allow the torpedo to jut into the hull of the ship, but this one did not. The plan was to sneak up next to the ship, deposit the bomb, and it would detonate when the ship bumped it, allowing the vessel time to back away from the torpedo. Dixon had other plans. Lieutenant George E. Dixon and seven other men, sitting shoulder to shoulder and hunched over, cranked their way closer to the ship. They had been training for this moment for months. 
Even though the Hunley was built as a submarine and proved it could succeed underwater, but because it was still not 100% safe for the crew, General Beauregard directed Dixon to stay above the water's surface. Safer if escape was necessary. Safer if they needed oxygen quickly, but also making it a target if spotted. It took about two hours after leaving the shore to reach the Housatonic. There was no talking as oxygen was limited and must be used as sparingly as possible. It's 8.20. The men from the Hunley could hear the chatter from the deck of the ship. They were so excited to be this close to their target and were too anxious to wait for the tide to turn in their favor, so they pushed through it. Excited energy spread throughout the tight quarters. This was it. Complete the mission. Not taking his eye off the floating log, Fleming called over a friend, a black sailor, C.P. Slade, to get a second opinion. They watched the log go against the tide and was headed directly for the ship. Fleming would shout, quote, If no one is going to report this, I will cut the buoy adrift myself and get ready for slipping, end quote. Comthwaite opted to give it another look using binoculars and saw that the log seemed to possess two conning towers and that it was moving directly at the ship. Men were soon crowding the deck, peering over the side, looking at the vessel slowly and deliberately moving toward them only 300 feet away. Captain Pickering racing to the deck, slipping on his overcoat, shouting, Slip the anchor and fire up the engine! He would later recall, quote, it was shaped like a large whaleboat, about two feet more or less under the water. The bow was within two or three feet off the ship's side, end quote. As the tiny whale-shaped sub scooted closer, the giant Housatonic couldn't move out of its way fast enough or tip its massive cannons low enough to blow the little mosquito out of the water. Captain Pickering pointed his double-barreled shotgun and blasted at the intruder. Several of the sailors did the same using their own firearms, but the little vessel kept inching closer. Hello, hello! Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free, so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. The little submarine that could was made by profiteers. It was not created by naval engineers or scientists for the greater good of the South. Even though the U.S. Navy was working on their own version as well, with a prototype as early as 1861. 
It was made by laypersons who were after the reward money the Confederates were offering to whomever sinks a Union ship. In this case, which I believe I mentioned, was the sweet sound of $50,000, well over a million dollars in today's currency. Horace Lawson Hunley was not a fan of the war, so to speak. He would speak out against it, saying that it was foolish. But who knows, $50,000 was nothing to sneeze at. More than that, Hunley wanted to be remembered for something. He wanted a legacy that said that he was here. In 1861, inspired by chemist and inventor Reverend Franklin Smith, H.L. Hunley switched his focus from New Orleans lawyer and lawmaker to submarine builder. Using the parameters that Reverend Smith would share in a newspaper article, quote, The new vessel must be cigar-shaped for speed, made of plate iron, joined without external rivet heads, about 30 feet long, with a central section about 4 by 3 feet, driven by a spiral propeller, end quote. Hunley set out to find a crew and a few investors. He met up with a former riverboat captain and engineer, James McClintock, who was currently making bullets for the Confederate Army because he created a new, faster way to melt and mold the mini-balls. He also had his own shop just outside of the French Quarter in New Orleans. McClintock, with the help of Baxter Watson, drafted and then built a submarine over the winter using almost the exact parameters indicated by Smith's instruction. They called it the Pioneer. It was powered by two men that would turn the crank that would power the propeller, while a third would keep his head inside the conning tower to steer. It was launched in March 1862. Not perfect, but it proved it could work. When Union troops captured New Orleans a month later, Hunley and McClintock would sink their own creation so it wouldn't fall into the Union hands, and escaped to Mobile, Alabama. The diver was their second prototype once they found their footing in Mobile. McClintock added two more men to crank the propeller to give it more power. This decision came after months and months of failed attempts to create a motor to fit into the small vessel. The diver had every intention of attacking the blockade on the West Gulf, but despite having the manpower of four with one driver, it didn't have enough power to fight against the tides and would find itself pulled out to sea. It would end up sinking in Mobile Bay. Running short of funds, Edgar Singer, who had been experimenting with torpedoes in Texas, joined the crusade. He could see how their work could be used together. For clarification purposes, during the Civil War, torpedoes were considered what we now call mines. Torpedoes that we are familiar with today, where they are launched at a target, had not been dreamt up as yet. But as early as 1862, the Confederate Army would build oversized bullets that could be buried under the soft ground, detonated once disturbed, were also called torpedoes. Then they expanded this theory to have explosive devices floating along the rivers, just waiting for Union ships to bonk into them and explode. The Hunley would be the first water vessel that actually delivered the deadly bomb to a waiting target. So when we are talking about torpedoes for this nifty underwater vessel, it's literally attached to it. Their submarine was made from a repurposed boiler of a steamship. Brian Hicks explains the ingenuity of the next version in 1863 in his article for Navy History Magazine. Quote, she would have an elliptic shape, 
the bow would be only an inch wide, the submarine expanding to her broadest point at the crew compartment and tapering again towards the stern. McClintock added thin dorsal fins in front of the hatches to cut down on drag. He also installed small fins in front of the boat's diving wings to deflect rope or seaweed, anything that might jam the fins' operation. This was not a cigar boat. She looked more like a shark. At 40 feet, the sub would be 4 feet longer than the diver. The reason, McClintock said, was because this boat was built expressly for hand power. If she had to be powered by hand, he would simply add more hands. The main compartment of the submarine would be nearly 25 feet long. With that additional space, the sub could carry a crew of eight. McClintock expanded their power exponentially by installing a series of reduction gears and a flywheel between the propeller and the hand cranks. The crew would be able to propel the sub like a wind-up toy. This could give the men periods of rest and perhaps even allow them to work in shifts. It would cut down on exhaustion, which he hoped would increase the submarine's range. McClintock designed a sleek, hydrodynamic, complex vessel far ahead of her time. Well into the 20th century, most boats that traveled beneath the waves followed McClintock's vision, but he would never be recognized as the father of the modern submarine. End quote. A successful practice run of the submarine was tested in front of two Confederate commanders in Mobile. The submarine was seen in the distance floating along the surface, dragging along a contact mine behind her. As it approached the targeted barge, it disappeared under the water and released the torpedo, which continued to bob along the water's surface. After a bit, the torpedo made contact with the barge and it completely exploded and slowly sank while the little submarine safely came up for air 400 yards further downstream. The Confederate witnesses were sold and decided that this piece of naval mastery would help them turn the tide, perhaps literally. The porpoise was secretly shipped by train to South Carolina, and when she arrived was quickly seized by Confederate Army. Luckily, or perhaps unluckily, Horace Hunley was allowed to stay on to oversee continued upgrades. On August 29, 1863, the fish boat, as it was sometimes called, would go out for a test drive. Lieutenant Payne would be at its command, and while the crew cranked away, Payne would accidentally hit the lever that would cause the sub to dive. The bad news about this is, the two hatches were still open, causing the vessel to flood with water. Lieutenant Payne and two others would be the only survivors of the crew of eight. On October 15, 1863, Lieutenant George Dixon would take over as commander of the sub. On this particular day, the submarine would be doing a practice attack scenario, and its creator, H.L. Hunley, decided to take part in the demonstration. The vessel was gently attacked, and it sunk to the bottom, killing all eight on board, including Horace Hunley. The newly named and dedicated Hunley submarine was salvaged from the floor, cleaned off and prepped to head out again. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. Can I just be real a second? I live full-time, on the road, in a camper. And because I choose this life, I do need to take extra care when it comes to my safety. I would hate to have to give up my dreams that I've worked so hard to reach because I didn't take these few extra steps. 
and thanks to Damsel in Defense, they made it easy for me to take extra precautions for my own personal safety. I started purchasing Damsel in Defense products and I love the way they are made. They're not bulky or hard to use, and they really have my safety in mind. They didn't break the bank either. And bonus, they come in all kinds of colors, styles, and even some sparkle. Thanks to them, I am free to roam about this great country and feel safe knowing that I have some sort of safety device within arm's reach or on my person. If you do not have at least one method of self-protection with you or around you, I urge you to check out our exclusive page, www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones and take responsibility for your safety so you can enjoy life. I am proud to have them in the Bag of Bones family, and you'll love them too. Check out our exclusive link at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Inside the Hunley, the eight men could hear bullets pinging off the metal outside. One got a little too close for comfort and tore a hole in one of the conning towers just over Dixon's head. John K. Crosby, who was on board the Housatonic at the time of the attack, would document, quote, Several muskets were fired at it, and when it was close alongside, Captain Pickering fired his gun at it, end quote. The Hunley knew it was now or never. Every man summoning every last bit of energy pushed the Hunley toward its target. The copper keg filled with black powder was rammed into the front hull of the gigantic USS Housatonic. Brian Hicks would report, quote, And then an explosion. Acting Master John Crosby would later say it sounded like a collision with another vessel. There was no smoke, no flame, no sharp report, no column of water thrown into the air simply a noticeable pressure, and then the Housatonic blew up, end quote. A direct hit resulting from the explosion cut a gaping hole in the side of the wooden ship, causing it to take on water, sinking it in less than 10 minutes. Even though the ship wasn't too far out into the ocean, hitting bottom at 25 feet down, it would take the lives of five crew members. The Confederate land crew saw the explosion and waited for the Hunley to return to shore, but it never did. The Hunley would become the first submarine that would be successful in combat, but then it disappeared, lost in the dark waters of the Atlantic for another 130 years. Underwater archaeologist Edward Lee Spence would first report and document the discovery of the Hunley in 1970. Spence also claims the discovery of the Housatonic as well. On September 13, 1976, the National Park Service approved Spence's location to become acknowledged on the National Register of Historic Places and was approved on December 29, 1978. The sub was buried under silt and sand and had layers of rust and seashell creatures. The complete vessel was found virtually intact. This actually preserved the inside of the Hunley and all of its contents, including the passengers. On September 14, 1995, Spence donated the find to the state of South Carolina. On August 8, 2000, it was recovered and raised from its watery grave. 
the Hunley was sent to Charleston on quote-unquote permanent loan for its conservation and documentation. Upon its arrival, the Hunley was placed in a conservation tank of fresh water where the experts would begin dissecting it in the most gentle manner to unveil the clues. Everyone was most curious about how and why the Hunley and its crew did not make it back to shore. Amazingly, the crew was discovered inside the remains of the Hunley, exactly where they would have been piloting the sub. This allowed scientists to discover several options on their demise. For context, in other experiments of sunken submarines, all of the crew had been trying desperately to escape. Their bodies would be found near the conning towers or the hatches, which was the main door to freedom. And there were also examples of clawing, signs of panic and desperation. Quote, Evidence seems to suggest more and more that the final moments were quick and decisive. End quote. In the one and only attack of the Hunley, the crew showed no signs of panic or concern. The vessel was carefully crafted with options that, should the crew experience problems, there were solutions at hand. For example, there were weighted ballasts attached to the outside of the vessel, but were releasable from the inside. They had not turned the bolts that would have allowed them a quick weight release to rise to the top, nor did they activate the pumps that was designated to push water from the bilge. Lieutenant George Dixon was the pilot. He was the one steering the vessel. His skeletal structure shows that he was still in a sitting position at his station, but his body was just gently slumped over slightly to the left. All the bones of the crew, actually, were in neat little piles. Dixon's legs had been packed with silt, holding the exact place he expired. He even still had his shoes on. Lead researcher Maria Jacobson would discover his pocket watch and his lucky coin within the pile of his remains in 2002. The story behind the coin is that while fighting in the Battle of Shiloh, he was shot in the leg. The bullet actually hit the coin and probably spared his leg, if not his life. He took that coin and on one side it had bullet damage. But on the other side, he had it smoothed down and engraved with the words, Shiloh, April 6th, 1862, my life preserver, and then his initials, G-E-D. And to add even more authenticity to this story, a forensic anthropologist actually found a healed injury to Lieutenant Dixon's hip bone. One theory of the demise of the Hunley comes down to suffocation. In their tiny little space, there was really no way to expel the carbon dioxide that the men would exhale. So, eventually, they would run out of fresh oxygen and would begin breathing in their own carbon dioxide, thereby poisoning themselves. Dr. Rachel Lance from Duke University did some research to see if it was as simple as suffocation that accounted for the death of the crew. If that were the case, she says, the crew may have lost consciousness before noticing the symptoms, which are bulging eyes, choking, gagging, panic, very painful, which, according to Dr. Lance, would take about 30 minutes before the loss of air, and the men would begin feeling the painful effects and would then have about 10 minutes before they would have lost consciousness. But she explains, quote, If they're in there and they're physically uncomfortable, and they're struggling, and they have at least 10 minutes, 
They have made no efforts once again to try and save themselves or bring new air into the boat. End quote. Because, side note, if you recall, the attack on the Housatonic happened while the Hunley was still on the surface, not under the water. The crew could have easily opened the hatches to get fresh air. Dr. Lance says, quote, Because if you only have ten minutes at that level of symptoms, nobody would be sitting there peacefully. End quote. In 2017, at Duke University's Biomedical Engineering, Dr. Rachel Lance conducted experiments to determine what might have happened to the crew of the H.L. Hunley since the sub itself hadn't exploded. She explains, quote, The types of injuries from the Hunley would have actually been different from what we would expect people in a Humvee hitting an IED. In that case, you're concerned with something called underbody blast, which means there are shrapnel effects and effects from the damage to the vehicle that cause broken bones and other injuries. Whereas the crew of the Hunley, there was no shrapnel. It was just the blast wave itself that propagated into the vessel. So the injuries would have been purely in the soft tissues, in the lungs and in the brain. And that's actually really consistent with what the archaeologists at Clemson found, meaning that there were no broken bones, end quote. She also adds, quote, Fatal blast traumas occur when the blast wave hits the human body. As it hits a gas-containing space like the lungs, it slows down and that is what causes trauma to those organs. It's also very likely that the men would have experienced traumatic brain injuries. These remains were underwater for over a hundred years and when they pulled them from the ocean, their brains were still inside. The brains were intact. Some showed a diffuse staining across the surface, which would be consistent with blast-induced hematoma, end quote. The Hunley is believed to have sunk within 13 to 14 minutes and floated out toward the sea to its final resting place, waiting to be rediscovered more than a 100 years later. On April 17, 2004, the remains of the crew were laid to rest at Magnolia Cemetery in Charleston, South Carolina. Today, the Hunley can be seen on the campus of Clemson University's Restoration Institute in North Charleston. Kellen Butler, who is the executive director of the Friends of the Hunley, says, quote, The space is part conversion lab, part museum. Scientists work on the submarine during the week while guests can visit on the weekends, end quote. I've added it to my bucket list. What is your opinion of what happened to the crew of the Hunley? I'd love for you to share your thoughts with me on the socials or at the website. All links can be found in the show notes. Also, as always, the Ragtag Network provides some amazing photos, and this is no exception. Find some good photos of the Hunley at www.ragtagnetwork.com forward slash bag of bones podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I look forward to these every single week. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.
ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.